Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 475, part four of John Harrison's Search for Longitude. The ship's log, however, reveals that H1 was not performing as well as it might have on the outward voyage. And some of the positions calculated from its readings appear to be considerably wide of the mark. In Lisbon, H1 was transferred to the Orford and does not appear to have performed much better on the long homeward voyage. Indeed, Harrison used each one to correct a misreading of the ship's longitude and prevented what could have been a very serious incident. All the officers believed that the first land sighted by the ship was the start point near Dartmouth. Harrison and H1, however, proved that it was the lizard, lizard point, on the peninsula. This is located nearly 60 miles to the southwest. It is the southernmost point in England and revealed to the crew that the ship was, in fact, in a much more perilous position, enabling evasive action to be taken just in time. In due course, in recognition of the significant feat, the master of the ship, Roger Wills, presented Harrison with a certificate outlining these important facts. On June 30th, 1737, the Board of Longitude convened officially for the first time to hear how H1's trial had gone and to inspect this model of high technology. The news the Board received was evidence that, after all, a marine timekeeper might just prove to be the practical solution to the longitude problem. The first workable marine timekeeper. Today, timekeepers are referred to as marine timekeepers, but the term chronometer was not widely used until after Harrison's death. The word timekeeper had very special significance. It was only used to describe a portable machine capable of high accuracy. It should also be mentioned that the H abbreviations used today to refer to the timekeepers, are a relatively recent denotation, first applied by Lieutenant Commander Rupert T. Gould in the 1940s during his restoration work on them. As mentioned, Harrison designed the first marine timekeeper to be conceptually a portable version of his precision pendulum clocks, and it is important to bear this in mind. If one is to understand H1 properly, unlike the pendulum clocks, which run for a week with one winding, all Harrison's timekeepers run for one day only. But H1 has wheelwork of oak with lignum vitae roller pinions. The main frame and ancillaries of the timekeeper are all made in brass or other alloys. Where possible, avoiding the use of steel, which would rust at sea. Instead, Harrison used two types of bronze, a low tin bronze where good tensile strength was required, and a high tin bronze where compression strength was needed. The major difference between H1 and the pendulum clocks is that H1 does not require gravity for any of its operations. An essential prerequisite for marine timekeeper, but one that many earlier designers including Huygens and Sully, had overlooked severely. Thus, the timekeepers 
is spring-driven, with a fusée to ensure a uniform driving force. This fusée is, however, most unusual in that it employs two chains and two barrels, positioned at 180 degrees to one another, hugely reducing the load of the pivots on the fusée. In spite of its relatively good performance on the Orford, H1 did not perform nearly well enough to win the smallest of the Longitude prizes. Even before its trial, Harrison probably knew the design could be improved. It was only after all very much a prototype, and one on which the Harrisons never even put their signatures. Wishing to move on, Harrison did not ask for a second official trial of H1, but requested financial assistance from the board to make an improved version of the timekeeper, nothing like H1, had been seen before, and the commissioners were undoubtedly very impressed by both the machine and its inventor. They allocated him 250 pounds there and then, with the promise of another 250 pounds upon completion of an improved machine. In, in agreeing to this support, the commissioners were, in effect, in, in, instigating the very first government-sponsored research and development project undertaken by a private contractor. The move to London. On his visits to London, and especially one when he was introduced to George Graham's circle, Harrison discovered how the city's unique horological facilities and connections made work much easier. Almost anything he needed in the way of horological services or materials could be sourced out in London. There is no doubt either that Graham and his circle would have been able to advise Harrison on written scientific or horological sources, as we know Graham himself discussed and advised Harrison on some details of his timekeepers, advice that was not always taken or not always taken easily. Harrison decided that if he were to succeed in creating a marine timekeeper, he would need the support of the London trade and he moved to the capital in 1736. Soon after his return to Lisbon, his first home was in the Leather Lane in Holborn. But around 1739, he moved west to Red Lion Square, where he would remain for the rest of his life. It seems that James accompanied his brother for the first year or so, but there may have been a breakdown in the partnership as James did not stay long. By 1738, he was living back in Lincolnshire. Let's talk about H2. Harrison began work on the second timekeeper immediately by January of 1741. He was before the board once again. By this time, he had already realized a deficiency of the design of H2 and had begun to work on a third timekeeper, H3. Notwithstanding this, H2 is a remarkable sort of timekeeper as H1 and has a more professional feel to its construction. Harrison told the board in a letter review that he had employed the services of a number of London tradesmen. This, this would certainly have been for the supply of materials such as brass plate and steel springs and services such as engraving. All in probability, he also employed workmen for tasks such as basic finishing, although the main design and layout of the movement would have been all his own, 
the details of which he would have been carefully concealed from prying eyes. Larger and heavier than H1, H2 stands 65 centimeters high and weighs over nine, <coughs> 39 kilograms and is made almost entirely of brass. The only wood in the timekeeper is the lignum vitae parts and the oak pallets of the escapement. The concept is fundamentally the same as H1's, except the temperature compensation is of a more simplified design, and Harrison fitted the remontoire to H2. As with H1, H2 would have been originally cased and mounted in large gimbals to ensure it remained horizontal at all times. The mounting itself does not survive, but its form has been recorded and a small pen and ink color wash. Harrison recorded that he noted a deficiency in the linked bar balances when H2 was moved. As in H1, the cross-linking of the H2 balances was supported to render them insensible to external motions while running. But he discovered, very much to his consternation, that the timekeeper was somewhat affected by movement, owing to centrifugal force acting on the balances. So if subjected to circular motion in a horizontal plane, the timekeeper would tend to go slow. If subjected to a circular motion in the plane of the side elevation, the timekeeper would tend to gain. And if, sub if subjected to circular motion in the plane of the front elevation, the timekeeper would become unpredictable, tending to gain or lose. We do not know. So he realized that the reason for this in the first two types of motion was that the balances were in the form of dumbbells. If he had made them in the form of wheels, this problem would be resolved. So there was no room in H2's design to convert to having wheel balances. So after more than two years of hard work and considerable expense, he was obliged to set H2 aside and start over once again. Any official trial must be given the best possible results. He may not be given another chance, and he could not contemplate having H2 tested once he discovered the fault. Harrison's backers stayed with him, though, and petitioned the board on his behalf for more money to continue H3. Still highly impressed with his ingenuity, the commissioners duly awarded Harrison another 500 pounds and work continued on the third timekeeper. Unfortunately for Harrison, H3 was to be even more problematic than H2. Within five years, it was running and under test, but from the onset, it was clear that getting this design to keep close time would be difficult to an impossible task, and Harrison was obliged to make constant changes to it. Years went by, and although many improvements were made, Harrison just could not get the timekeeper to perform to prize-winning accuracy. Even after an astonishing 19 years of painstaking labor, 19 years, H. Stew was stubbornly refusing to keep time well enough. And although he learned a great deal from his Herculean endeavor, its ultimate role was solely to convince him that the solution lay in another design altogether. So after his initial success with H1, the 1840s and early 1850s 
must, must have proved something of a midlife crisis for Harrison indeed. However, none of this was known to the Board of Longitude, who continued to support him with grants until 1760, awarding him with more than 3,000 pounds over that period. His supporters and other members of the scientific community were also unaware of the great difficulties Harrison faced and was still pinning their hopes on H3's success. Indeed, aware of the much wider implication for science and what Harrison was attempting, and even though H3 still not proved the breakthrough, in 1749, the Royal Society awarded Harrison their highest honor, the Gold Copley Medal, for his research work. H3 itself, which was supported, I'm sorry, which was supposed to be Harrison's magnum opus, must have been the greatest technical disappointment of his life. In latter years, he could only refer to it as Riley, as my curious third machine. And his perplexed notes on this machine represent the only example on record to the great man admitting to his failure. Nevertheless, H3 is an extraordinary mechanism and contains inventions that would prove exceedingly important in the history of technology. The balances are wheels instead of dumbbells and are arranged one above the other. They are still linked together with cross wires and beat seconds are driven by the grasshopper escapement as were the earlier machines. For his artificial gravity instead of helical springs, Harrison fitted one short spiral spring, which controls the upper balance only, and a 30-second remontoire was fitted to provide uniform power supply, and the machine runs without lubrication, as with previous timekeepers. H3, like H2, was mounted in a glazed brass case. So this is Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening. This was the end of part two of John Harrison, The Search for Longitude.